We'll hear argument first today in case 07330, Green Law versus United States. Ms. Howe? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For over 200 years, this Court has held, without exception, that an appellate court may not modify a judgment in a party's favor unless that party has filed a notice of appeal. Such a rule, this Court has explained, serves important interests in notice and finality. In 1984, Congress enacted the Sentencing Reform Act against the backdrop of this well-settled rule. In 18 U.S.C. Section 3742, Congress provided for limited appellate review of sentencing errors. Nothing in the text, structure, or history of Section 3742 reflects any intent by Congress to deviate from the inveterate and certain cross-appeal rule, nor is there any reason why sentencing appeals should be treated any differently from other appeals. Instead, Section 3742 reflects traditional principles of appellate jurisdiction. Could I ask you this question? I've been thinking about this case. Supposing your client uh, prevailed on appeal and they ought to resentencing, could the district judge have increased the sentence? No, it could not have, because the, the government... The district judge could not have increased it. They sent it back for a new sentencing, a fresh hearing on what the sentencing should be. Would the district judge have been foreclosed from uh, giving a higher sentence than he gave the first time? It, it, he would have been foreclosed, yes, Your Honor. What's the authority for that proposition? Uh, simply that the the, 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 uh, the district... If, say if it's a capital case and he won on appeal, he could get the death sentence the time, second time around, which would be, be a little more serious sentence. Why couldn't he get a higher sentence? This is a, the case actually in, in United States versus Harvey, which was a case out of the Third Circuit. And although the district court could order the same sentence, it can't increase the sentence. It, you know, it would be circumventing the cross-appeal rule. Is that based on any, any precedent of this court? No, it's based on the, the, the cross-appeal rule. So just on the cross-appeal rule? That's I would have thought it would depend on what the mandate from the Court of Appeals said. If the mandate said the sentence is vacated and the case is remanded for resentencing, it seems to me that leaves open the full range of legitimate sentencing. Certainly. I mean, our argument would be that, the, the, you know, if, if the Court of Appeals can't order the sentence increase, that on remand the district court couldn't circumvent the cross-appeal rule by increasing the sentence as well. Well, but the Court of Appeals, is, if your argument is correct, the Court of Appeals is limited solely by virtue of the failure to file a, a notice of cross-appeal. That, that's a limitation that wouldn't apply in the district court. No, that's, that's certainly true. But it would, it, it would be circumventing the cross-appeal rule to allow the district court to do something that the And court it would also, I take it, be circumventing what could happen in the district court. You have to move very seven days in the district court for mathematical error, and that's it. Yes. That's other, the other than for assistance. 30, yeah, the district court has, I believe, seven days to correct the sentence. This would not be a mathematical error. No, this would, be, this would not be a mathematical error. But I, I could have sworn that, I, that I've seen more than one uh, petition for certiorari in which the claim is that the uh, sentence was increased on remand vindictively. I'm sure I've seen cert petitions like that. And uh, you're telling me that the assertion of, uh, of vindictiveness is unnecessary, that it just can't be increased on remand. But all you have is a Court of Appeals case for that. Yes, we do. No, hasn't, perhaps that's after a new trial. Perhaps. What, what happens if, it's, what, what happens if the, the sentence is five years? Uh, reversed on appeal, error in evidence, same, same offense, same indictment, uh, then you uh, have to comply with the vindictiveness rules before you can give a higher sentence. I think it might be different if there, if it were a, if there were a new trial and the same indictment. But 
you know, going back to, to the, the cross appeal rule, I mean, the Court of Appeals, could, the District Court could certainly uh, impose the same sentence. What do you think is the rule if there's a new trial and the judge says, you know, I've thought about this, I've heard the evidence again, I think I'm going to increase the sentence? Well, our argument would be that the government had, had forfeited the, the right to make that argument and that the District Court would not be, you know, that would essentially be uh, sua sponte ordering uh, you know, as it's if not sui resentence. There's a new judgment, a new conviction. What happens there? New judge, new conviction. It, 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 the, the rule may be different. Or the, you know, double jeopardy may apply as well. Double jeopardy if it's a new judge. Is that what you said? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, Who asked this question? We're going to get into totally different <laughs> things here. <laughs> But, but let's go back to where you started, and that was with the, the statute, 37, what is it, 42? 42. F, and the, uh, that has two subparts, and the first part just says that the Court of Appeals can decide whether a sentence was imposed in violation of law, period. And two, has two subparts that refer to the party appealing. So why doesn't the first one cover both sides when the second one is distinctly divided into A and B parts? Certainly, Justice Ginsburg. And that, uh, this is reprinted on page 5A of the government's brief. And the, the inference that, that I think, Justice Ginsburg, you're drawing and that the, the amicus would have you draw is that the fact that uh, the subsection F2, which is on page 6A, subsection F2, A and B, refer to whether the appeal has been filed, whereas subsection F1 does not, means that in some circumstances the cross-appeal rule does not apply, and in some circumstances it does. But our interpretation, which we think is the correct one, is that the only reason that subsection F1 does not refer to whether an appeal has been filed is because subsection F1 refers to the kind of claims that both defendants and the government can bring, whereas subsection F2 uh, parallels subsections A3 and B3 that the, uh, the, only the defendant can appeal an upward departure, only the, the government can appeal a downward departure. And our interpretation, again, which we think is the correct one, is that subsection F1 doesn't need to refer to whether an appeal has been filed because, uh, because both the defendant and the government can bring those kinds of appeals. And even if you don't agree with that interpretation, I think it's worth noting that the amicus constru- amicus's construction is further flawed for three reasons. And the first is that that would cause subsection F2 to operate illogically. There's no reason why, for example, if you had a case in which the defendant had appealed and the government had not appealed. Under this interpretation, the Court of Appeals could increase a sentence if it found that there had been a misapplication of the guidelines that would result in an increase of the defendant's sentence. But the Court of Appeals would not be allowed to increase the defendant's sentence if it found that there was an unwarranted downward departure because the government hadn't filed a notice of appeal. And we don't think that doesn't make any sense. We don't think there's any reason why Congress would have intended it to operate this way. The second reason is that this is a very thin read to rest uh, this construction of the statute on, given that Congress must have been aware of the cross-appeal rule. There's no reason to, to think that it would have departed from two centuries of appellate practice in this way based on this, this 
very thin read. And, in fact, we know from the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 that Congress was aware of the cross-appeal rule because, in that case, it expressly carved out an exception well, to the What happens if it's just the converse case? The same thing, I tell I'm you. sorry? We, we have a government appeal sure. sentence. It was 10 years. The government thinks it should be 20. On appeal, the appellate court thinks that government's wrong. And, moreover, the court, appellate court discovers an error. It should have been one year. Now you're saying, well, according to you, not only is the Court of Appeals helpless, but the district court is helpless. So this person is in jail for nine years where he shouldn't have been. That's your, that's your position. That's correct, Justice Breyer. That's a pretty tough position. Uh, it, it, it seems to me there could be errors. And I guess if he's sentenced to death, it's the same. I mean, you know, the, 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 uh, it's a pretty tough position, isn't it? That there is no authority in the courts of appeals or in the district court or anywhere in the system to create, to, to correct a serious error where a person could, in fact, be in prison for a long time contrary to the law. How, how is it supposed to work in your system that we get those errors correct? I have three points, Justice Breyer. The first is that Congress must have been aware of this scenario in particular, because in the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, when the government appealed that under, in those provisions, that brought up the defendant's sentence and his conviction for review. And Congress decided, for whatever reason, not to continue that, that exception to the cross-appeal rule when it enacted the Sentencing Reform Act. The second point, Justice Breyer, is that we're not aware that there's actually any body of case law in which this happens. No one has pointed to any cases in which this has actually happened. Well, you say it's decided not to make an exception to the cross-appeal rule. Chris, the cross-appeal rule itself is not statutory, is it? The cross-appeal rule itself is, is not statutory, but, you know. It's, a, it's, it's an arguable rule among the courts of appeals as to whether there is such a rule. It, it is indeed, just, Justice well, Stevens. It's not surprising that Congress didn't make exception to a rule that isn't that firmly established. It's not surprising, but we know from the Organized Crime Control Act, that Congress certainly was aware of the cross-appeal rule, because in that case it did carve out a limited exception. And my third point, Justice Breyer, returning to your question, is that the defendant in that case may well have uh, an argument, may be able to seek post-conviction relief under Section 2255, as the government acknowledges in its brief. And so he may be able to go back to the district court under Section 2255 and obtain relief in that manner. I thought you, I thought it was uh, sort of an important part of your case that the cross-appeal rule was an established rule. You, you, you now acknowledge that it's not an established rule? Well, we do believe it is jurisdictional, Justice Scalia. The, in the Morley case, which we think is our Look, most — It's jurisdictional, but, but, but well-established. We believe it is both well-established and jurisdictional, and we believe in particular when you're talking about sentencing, um, even if you don't agree with, agree with us with the cross, that the cross-appeal rule generally — is jurisdictional. We believe that, it, that Section 3742 is jurisdictional because it sets out in se- subsections A and B the kinds of errors that defendants in the government can bring. But we also believe that it ultimately doesn't matter in this case, Justice Scalia, because even if, as the amicus concedes, it's merely a rule of practice, it's a rule of practice that is not subject to exceptions, and Mr. Greenlaw timely invoked it at his earliest opportunity. But you say it is a well-established, at least, rule of practice. Absolutely. And what's to be said against that? How, how many courts of appeals do not apply it? Uh, the, the Eighth Circuit in this case certainly did not apply it. The Tenth Circuit. Well, well, it, they, 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 they didn't apply it under this statute. I'm saying apart from this statute, 
what uh, what courts of appeals uh, in other cases uh, deny the existence of a cross appeal? Well, the, the District of Columbia Circuit and the Ninth Circuit both regard it as a, a rule of practice that, that may be uh, subject to exceptions in exceptional circumstances. But even if it is a rule of, je- of practice, Justice Scalia, we still prevail because Mr. Greenlaw timely invoked it as his, at his earliest opportunity, and because in the sentencing context it's not subject to any exceptions. What difference does it make? Now, you said this is a jurisdictional rule, the cross-appeal rule. What difference does it make if it's labeled jurisdictional or if it's just regarded as a tight procedural requirement? It makes a difference, Justice Ginsburg, in the sense that the, it can be — it cannot be waived if it's jurisdictional. That the, the Court can, wa- can raise it at any time. If it's a rule of practice, um, it's subject to exceptions, although in this, in this case, with this rule, the Court has not found an exception in over 200 years. The, in the sentencing context in particular, it's not subject to, to exceptions, and Mr. Greenlaw timely invoked it. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Ms. Howe. Ms. Maynard. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals erred in increasing petitioner's sentence for two reasons. First, it lacked jurisdiction to do so in the absence of a notice of appeal by the government under 18 U.S.C. 3742B. Second, even assuming it did not strictly lack jurisdiction, it nevertheless violated the mandatory claim processing rule that a judgment may not be increased in favor of an appellee in the absence of a timely cross-appeal. If the cross-appeal rule is jurisdictional, how do you account for the sentencing package, the sentencing package cases? The Court makes a mistake on count one, and the District Court makes a mistake on count one. The Court of Appeals vacates the entire sentence for the development of a new sentencing package. Those cases are not inconsistent with finding it jurisdictional, Justice Alito, because in those cases, the Court of Appeals has granted the defendant's requested relief, and it has vacated the judgment at the request of the defendant. And then once it goes back to the district court, what the district court may lawfully do would turn on the scope of the mandate, not on principles of the cross-appeal rule. But then in this very here. case, could the Court of Appeals said, we will, we will grant the, the, the appellant a new sentencing hearing and send the case back to the district for resentencing. And by the way, district judge, when you do the resentencing, take a look at the section that imposes a mandatory minimum. Could they have done that? If the Court of Appeals had found an error at the defendant's request, yes, Justice Stevens, and remanded, depending on the scope of the mandate and under the and scope of the mandate. they ended up with precisely the same result that they ended up in this case. The, it, but it would have been a key difference in the sense that they would have found some of the defendant's uh, claims on appeal uh, correct. Here, the Court of Appeals rejected all of the defendant's claims and nevertheless, in the absence of a government appeal, increase the petitioner's sentence. So if the District Court, if the Court of Appeals had said that the sentence that was imposed by the District Court was unreasonable by two months uh, and accepted the defendant's argument to that extent and then remanded on remand, the District Court could have corrected the sentence on the gun counts. It would have depended on how the mandate was worded, but if they vacated the sentence in its entirety and remanded, the district court could have imposed a lawful sentence at that point. Yes. Even, well, though, even if, though the prosecution didn't ask for it. I thought that you were relying on 
the division of authority between the executive, the prosecutor, and the court. And that is that a court reacts to the charges that the prosecutor brings. And if the prosecutor isn't asking for a higher sentence, the court has no authority to grant it. Yes, Your Honor. In the Court of Appeals, that is true. But I understood Justice Alito's hypothetical to posit a situation where, at the defendant's request, his sentence was vacated. And then what the district court could do on remand would depend on the scope of the mandate. Why not? Why wouldn't the prosecutor still have control and say, Judge, the government is asking for 10 years, no more? Oh, before the district court, Justice Ginsburg, the government would be required to press the law. And, and as it did here, the law is that under, under 924C, this is a second or subsequent conviction in count 10. And it is error. Petitioner should have been sentenced to a second or subsequent sentence of 25 years on count 10. So if it were back in the district court and the district court were free under the scope of the Court of Appeals mandate to impose sentence, then the government would be obligated to argue the law before the district court. But well, usually the mandate in these cases simply says, you know, the case is remanded to the district court. Now, if that's all the mandate says, does that authorize the district court to do the right thing under the law? The Courts of Appeals have um, different rules, Your Honor, about whether or not a general mandate of the type that you posit should be assumed to open up all issues for sentencing or not. And there's actually some disagreement in the circuits on what one assumes from a general mandate. Well, well actually, Rule 35 was changed because it used to be based on a mandate. Uh, but now Rule 35 says you can reopen within seven days after the verdict or finding of guilty. So that would indicate under the rules that the mandate is irrelevant. Well, no, Your Honor. I think Rule 35 speaks to what the district can do within seven days of announcing the sentence. Yep. Once a sentence is timely appealed, if the defendant were to prevail or if the government were to prevail in a case in which the government had actually appealed and it were to be remanded, then, then the defendant — Within the, the scope of the appeal, which brings us right back to this case. Within the scope of the mandate. I yes. don't understand your, your mandate rule as, as being consistent with your general theory of the case, because if the Court of Appeals cannot order this kind of relief, how can it be that the Court of Appeals' mandate would authorize the relief? It would seem to me that you've either got to take the position that the mandate is, in effect, uh, a, a, a kind of neutral order, the district courts may or may not have authority to do something after the mandate comes down, but I don't see how you can take the position that the mandate itself, by the Court of Appeals, will itself determine what the district court can do. Well, the, the Because, in effect, I think you're saying by structuring the mandate in a certain way, the Court of Appeals can open the door to something that the Court of Appeals itself could not do, but by structuring the mandate in a different way, the Court of Appeals can cut off the possibility of district court orders of a sort that the Court of Appeals couldn't do. And that seems that, — that, that's what seems to me inconsistent with your, with your theory of, of the limited Court of Appeals jurisdiction. I don't think it's anomalous, Your Honor. In a case in which the, the, the Court of Appeals has jurisdiction over a claim, grants the requested relief, and vacates the sentence for then what the district court can do to turn on the, on the scope of the Court of Appeals mandate. All right. Now, let's consider, uh, assuming that, that the mandate leaves the, the, open, the question open entirely for the district court, 
You said ultimately what the district court can do depends on the mandate. Can the Court of Appeals also by mandate say, and by the way, district court, because we couldn't increase the sentence here, you can't do it either. Is that open to the Court of Appeals? I don't know that there's any Court of Appeals that has, that has held that it could do that. It, 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 it's then, then what is the play in the mandate uh, in that, that, that you are assuming when you say it depends on the mandate? What the, what the, what the district court uh, can do would depend on the mandate. Well, I'm not sure I understand the qu- Where is the op- — what, what option does the Court of Appeals — given the, the limits on what the Court of Appeals itself can order, what are the options that the Court of Appeals has in writing the mandate that will determine what the district court can do? What are you getting at? I'm not sure that, that that's — I don't know the precise contours of that, Justice Souter, but if the Court of Appeals grants the petitioner's request to vacate a sentence yeah. and then remands for resentencing um, in a general way, that could leave open to the district court the ability to resentence. For okay. example, now un- let's uh, let you said that could leave open. Uh, if, if the mandate is general, that could leave open. Can the mandate be specific in precluding? Given the lack of a, an appeal here yeah. by the government, yeah. um, I, I suppose it 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 might do that. Um, I suppose it might it might be able to do that um, here. Look, I, don't, I don't know about your your, your initial premise. I, I I take it the policy here is that the defendant who appeals ought to know what's at stake in the appeal. He shouldn't be surprised. That's if right. the government cross appeals, fine. If he doesn't cross appeal, he knows what the stakes are. That's right. But now you're saying that if the sentence is uh, is vacated, they can start all over. Uh, the, the district court can't start all over if it's down if it's still in the district court. Why should the court of appeals have any more authority than the district court does? Well, because it, once the court, if the court, if the petitioner, I mean, at, at any risk in any appeal, and I think this is true in civil cases too. You know, if you if you seek a, a new trial on damages, for example, in a civil case because of instructional error, and you go back, um, I th- think you know the the jury who decides the the damages a second time isn't bound by the first jury's decision. Any time. So the, the defendant who is appealing uh, has to be very careful about the relief he requests. He says, I don't want the sentence vacated. I want the sentence reduced to five years instead of ten and nothing else. That's the only relief I seek. Well, I think if the Court of Appeals finds error in the sentence, it, it vacates under the, the remedial provisions in 3742 for the, for the, court, for the district court to re-sentence the petitioner. For example, in, well, in — Yeah, but if, if that's the case, if, 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 the, if, if it cannot be structured the, by the request for relief, as the Chief Justice is suggesting, then on the government's theory, uh, in a case like this, if the defendant wins on appeal — he is in serious trouble when that case goes back to the district court, whereas he, if he loses, he can't be any worse off than he is now. That's a strange, that's a strange rule. Though if the defendant wins in a sentencing appeal, there, there's always the chance that on, on, on remand, the, 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 the district court will reconfigure the sentence. If but the in sentence effect, is that, that means then, and I, I mean, this, this, I didn't understand this to be your position, but uh, that, that means, in effect, that 
The cross-appeal rule is essentially, uh, as, as you're arguing for it, a, a formality. It limits what the district court can do, but it is not a rule that embodies the notion that when a defendant appeals, the defendant ought to know, in effect, uh, what he can gain and what he can lose. Because if, on your theory, if the defendant wins and there's a mandate back to the district court, it's wide open. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the at cases, resentencing post-Booker, for example. Well, yeah, I, I, I want to look at them, but I want to know what your position is first. And I take it your position is that if, if the defendant wins and he cannot, by his request for relief, limit the relief, as the Chief Justice suggested, then when the case goes back to the district court, uh, in effect, uh, the, the slate is totally blank, and he's starting all over again, and he is subject to, to whatever outer limits he would have been subject to in the first instance. Right, and I was going to use the Booker case as an example. Post-Booker, you know, the defendants have appealed, saying, I was sentenced under a mandatory guidelines regime, and I want to be sentenced under the advisory guidelines regime. And when those cases have gone back, um, uh, courts of appeals have, most of the courts of appeals have held that the district court is not bound by its original sentence. Once freed from the mandatory guidelines, it can consider all the factors as instructed by this court and can potentially recrease the sentence. And I and think the, then the cross appeals rule is is essentially a, a rule of appellate court procedure and nothing more. Well, I think in this situation, actually, it, it definitely is a rule of appellate court procedure. Yeah, but it, it's, it's definitely more, a mandatory. It, but it doesn't go beyond that. Length. I think that's correct. If, if, you, if, if you succeed on your appeal, you may end up in the district court it, worse off than when you began. But the issue before this court is what can a court of appeals do in the absence of a party pressing a claim before it? And in, in, in that context, aren't, aren't you concerned about enlisting the court of appeals and doing something illegal? Um, I mean, they know that what they're authorizing uh, or imposing, really, as the sentence is illegal. No, all, all they are doing, Your Honor, as, as we requested, is rejecting the petitioner's claims on a Well, I know, but I'm, I'm reminded of what we do in statutory cases. If one party says this is, it should be read A and the other party says it should be read B, uh, we've had cases where we say, well, they're both wrong and we're going to read the statute as, as C because we, the Court, want to do the right thing. Well, the government is not agreeing that there was, with the petitioner, that there was no deal error. That what the government is saying, the question is, what, so this is not a situation like you're positing where the parties are trying to agree to the governing law. This is a question of which issues are properly in the court. No, no, no. In my hypothetical, with. they weren't agreeing. They were, one side was saying B, the other side was saying A. Fair enough. And the right answer was C. Fair enough, but here there's, there's no disagreement about what the merits of the governing law is. The question is, is that question bef- properly before the Why court of appeals? Why did the government court cross-appeal in this case? There's nothing in the record to indicate why the government didn't cross-appeal, Justice Ginsburg, but there are good reasons why the government wouldn't cross-appeal in any given case. There are 8,000-plus adverse decisions against the government in 2007, and reasons why the government might not cross-appeal or appeal in a given case include the length of the sentence the person has already received, whether there's a need for clarification of a particular question of law, getting whether this is a recurring The difficulty error. of getting the Solicitor General's office to authorize the appeal. It seems please. to me that uh, many of these horribles um, really exist uh, however we decide this case, I don't know that anybody says that if there is not a firm rule uh, requiring a, f- a cross-appeal 
I don't know that anybody says that the Court of Appeals must search the record and correct any errors below. Well, the amicus is arguing that's the meaning of 3742. Well, I'm talking about the general general cross-appeal rule. It happens all the time. But there's a — That there's an error in the judgment, which the Court of Appeals does not — does not reach because there's been no port, no, no cross appeal. It, it's it's totally unexceptionable. Exactly, Your Honor, and that the danger to parties, in particular to the government, in having courts reach out and arrogate to themselves the decision. Thank you. Uh, the decision to appeal is is illustrated by this particular case. In footnote six of the Court of Appeals opinion, it recognized a second error that grieved the government, decided it was plain. May I ask just this one question? Uh, This problem has been around for a long, long time, and sometimes cross-appeals, courts of appeals have corrected what they thought was plain error and and without a cross-appeal there. Has that generated a whole lot of problems over the years? I mean, there are isolated cases that you've all been able to find searching 30 or 40 years of jurisprudence. But I don't see any widespread problem being generated by the courts of appeals who have disagreed with your view. Well, if I could make two points. The the Court of Appeals actually found two errors that agreed the government here, Justice Stevens, and ruled for us only on one. So in a case where we didn't notice an appeal on an issue we did not brief, the Court of Appeals ruled against us. And, And second, I'm aware of no case in this Court where this Court has reached out to find plain error on behalf of a non-petitioning respondent or a non-appealing uh, appellee. Thank you, Ms. Maynard. Mr. Jorgensen. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are three questions, really, in this case, and the Court need not resolve all of them depending on how it resolves the others, but some of them get lost sometimes. So I'd like to state what the three are. The the three are, first, does Section 3742 provide an answer? Is it an an affirmative grant of power to the uh, Court of Appeals, to the Eighth Circuit, to give the right answer when the, when the petitioner asked him, is my sentence imposed in violation of law, or is it a limit on the Court's power, telling them they cannot provide him with relief? That's the first question. If the Court con- concludes that it's neither, if a Court concludes either that it is a grant of jurisdiction or, rather, of power, uh, or that it's not, that it's an affirmative limit, then the Court can end there. If the Court concludes that 3742 is more like 1291, just a general appellate statute that does not give the answer here. Then the court has to go on to decide, is this case, is this rule, this cross-appeal rule, in the criminal context, not the civil context that is the uh, subject of this 200 years of discussion, but in the criminal context, is it a jurisdictional limit on what the courts can do, or is it a rule of practice? And then finally, if the court concludes, if the court concludes it's a jurisdictional limit, uh, then that's the end. If the court concludes that it's a rule of practice, the final third question is, is it a waivable rule of practice or is it a firm and inflexible rule of practice? And I think that one often gets assumed, but of course in Contract, in Bowles, the court addresses the issue in, that case, in those cases and decides whether the rule of practice at issue in that case Mr. is... Mr. Jorgensen, suppose I think there's a larger anterior question to all of this. Yes. And that is what I suggested in the colloquy with Ms. Howe. We have a system in which the prosecutor can bring charges. The judge may think, my goodness, looking at this set of facts, you could have charged much more. The judge can't 
do that. You can't tell the prosecutor you have to charge Y as in addition to X. The government chooses not to appeal. By what right does the court say, I know you didn't appeal, government, but you should have, so we're going to take care of it for you. It seems to me that our system rests on a principle of party presentation, as many systems do not. In many systems, the court does shape the controversy and can intrude in issues on its own. But in our adversarial system, we rely on counsel to do that kind of thing. So my problem with your whole position, without getting down to particular statutory provisions, is what business does the court have to put an issue in the case that counsel chose not to raise? uh, The the answer to that question, Justice Ginsburg, is is multi-part, but I'll try to move through it quickly. This Court has said, made the very point that you made at the charging stage, that at the charging stage, the Court, uh, the District Court, cannot decide what what a criminal will be charged with, but that once the trial has proceeded to judgment, that prosecutorial discretion is at an end. I wish I could remember the name of the case, but Justice Scalia was the author. Um... Uh, the, the point Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the point being that once uh, a, a crime has been proven, the law kicks in, and the, the, the defendant must be sentenced in accordance with law. The same is true on appeal. I am not advocating here for I think what your question would assume, which would be a roving court of jurisdiction, a roving court of appeals that could reach out and take jurisdiction over a case that has not been brought to it. Under 3742, no one questions that the court has jurisdiction over the case, over the very sentencing issues, because somebody has filed a notice of appeal and brought it to the court. The only question is when the defendant says to the court under 3742A1, was my question, was my sentence imposed and the, the statutory language is in violation of law? Can the Eighth Circuit provide the right answer, or is it powerless to provide the right answer, to only provide an answer that benefits him? Could, could we discuss, uh, let's could we leave aside for the moment, what the background rule of law is and discuss whether, I guess it was your first point, whether this particular statute prescribes the answer, and yes. therefore we don't have to go any further. Why do you say it prescribes the answer? I, I believe that it does, Justice, because uh, everybody agrees that the Sentencing Reform Act was a clean break with the past and imposed an entirely new regime. So the, the, the talk about the regime of the past is somewhat beside the point. So then you get down to the language itself of Section 3742. Under A, it provides that a defendant may uh, ask the Court of Appeals, was my sentence imposed in violation of law? And under B-1, the government can raise the same appeal. Then under D, the parties certify to the court, or rather bring to the court, the record that they think addresses the issue that either side raised. And then in E, the court, E says the court shall decide whether it was imposed in violation of law. And then F-1 says if the court determines that it was imposed in violation of law, it shall send it back with instructions. Now, the, the main answer to that is, well, F1, you have to get all the way to F1 before you've got the answer, and that's unsurprising. I don't think any member of the Court would say that the Eighth Circuit lacks the power, is barred from noticing the 924C error here. Certainly the Eighth Circuit could see it. Certainly the Eighth Circuit could say it. I see the error here. The only question is, can it provide the remedy? 
and that's what F-1 said. Well, what, Not only why, can't why, why, would, uh, why would Congress want a different disposition for F-1 than for F-2? It's clear that under F-2, if the sentence is outside the applicable guidelines, and the, or if the departure is based on an impermissible factor or is to an unreasonable degree, or the sentence was imposed for an offense for which there is no applicable guideline and is plainly unreasonable. For that, it is clear that if it hasn't been raised by one or the other party, the Court doesn't get into it. Why, why would it want a different rule for those two? In other words, I'm saying that far from supporting your case, as your brief suggests, F2, A, and B, it seems to me, harms your case. Well, if I can give a two-part answer, Justice. First, the the Court is not in the practice of overturning what the plain language says on a uh, sort of legislative history or surmising what Congress may have been motivated by. But but even if it were, there is a, a clear answer. F1 subsumes A1 and A2 and B1 and B2. And the questions under those statutes, or or rather those provisions, are legal questions. The kind of questions, was this sentence imposed under A1B1 in violation of law, or A2B2, was it an incorrect application of the sentencing guidelines? If the Court of Appeals gets that wrong, that's the kind of thing that's going to be imposed in everybody else's case. But under 3 and 4, it's this this defendant's case. Wait, wait, 2A and B, I thought, do, do I not have this right? 2A and B say the same thing as 1. It says if, if, if the sentence is too high, say the defendant is appealed, then what you do is you vacate it and send it back with such instructions as the Court considers appropriate. Indeed. Subject to G, which has to do with the district court. Then the other part says if it's too low and it was the government that appealed, the Court shall set it aside and send it back with such instructions as it considers appropriate. Again, subject to G. So all three say the same thing. No, but it uh, but but not if it's too high, and the and the defendant has appealed. That's what. I, and not, not if it's too high and the government has appealed. That's if right. If it's too high and the government has appealed, you don't get any relief under under. under. Y- yes, you do. If it's too high, wait, wait. If it's too, ah. <laughs> so back, you're exactly right, Justice Scalia. So the question is, why would Congress say what it plainly said, which is under F1, violations of law and incorrect applications of the sentencing guidelines, the Court gives the right answer no matter who appeals. But under F2, Congress specifies it matters under this who appeals. And the reason is, in those instances, it's too high in, in this defendant's case. And this defendant can be entrusted to forward his own cause. But under A1 and A2, then you get a Court of Appeals precedent that, that, that gives the wrong answer in a, in a question of law or the application of the sentencing guidelines. So there is a difference between A1, A2, B1, B2, and 2 and 3. Of course, the, you, know, you know, that difference disappears if you say that, uh, that in fact, uh, the whole thing assumes that the, uh, the factor complained of has been brought to the Court's attention by the proper person, so that F-1 assumes that uh, if it's the, the government appealing uh, in violation of law because the defendant was given too little, or if it's the defendant appealing because uh, in violation of law he was given too much, 
uh, it, it makes much more sense that way, it seems to me. Yeah. That, that uh, if the Court were to go there, Justice, I believe that goes back to your previous question of what would, would, should we assume or should the Court uh, believe that Congress was aware sure, of, of this history does, when it legislated? Does. And I think so the way to do this, then, is, is I, I, I see this section foresees basically what the other side is saying. It foresees it. Because it's a very unusual case, what happened here. It is a very So the way you should handle it, given this section, is the Court of Appeals would say, I'm trying this on, the Court of Appeals says, well, it's the defendant that appeal, to appeal. He says the sentence is too high. Given what we have in front of us and the issues, he's right. Now, we've noticed that there's this other problem here. So what we do is send it back for resentencing. And judge, when you resentence, look at it and see if maybe we're right. That would be a perfectly fair way to handle it and a normal way to handle it. Is that right? Well, importantly, Justice, uh, one, two, three, and four, one being is it imposed in violation of law, two, is it an incorrect application of the sentencing line, C, three, is it too high. There's a body of case law as to what kind of appeals fit within what category, and the, the parties and the courts of appeals are, are, are united in believing that the petitioner's question in this case fits within A1. Was his sentence imposed in violation of law? As you know, the Court created the reasonableness question in Booker, and then the courts of appeals have agreed that that fits in within A1. Except, right. except that it's, it's not enough to say, well, we've noticed, by the way, you know, we're, we're you know, we're looking at the, at the proper appeal by the proper, per, it, it, my goodness, look what we've noticed. It's not that. You're saying the court of appeals has to search the record. It has to make sure that there were no errors in favor, uh, or, 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 or harming the other party who has not crossed appealed. And that's a considerable burden, as, as Judge Boudin's opinion on, on the Court of Appeals makes clear. Indeed. Indeed. And, and it's extraordinary. Indeed. It, although it is what 3742 says, and I believe it's actually not that different than what happens with jurisdictional issues. The Court must resolve those that are brought to it, and then the Court notices the ones that are obvious, has a duty to look for them. But Which that is why we have tried to pare down what, what is jurisdictional. And on that question, I, before the time runs out, I want to, Justice Scalia, follow up on your question, which is, what if the Court assumes that 3742 does not provide the answer, which is, I, I believe, where you're going? Then the Court confronts the question of, is the cross-appeal rule jurisdictional or a rule of practice? Now, the Court has provided the answer to that once in, I believe it said, Langus, uh, and said that it is a rule of practice. And then since then, there's been, a, obviously, a long period of time and then the court has had its series of cases, Contract Bowles, Arbaugh. And under those cases, there is no good argument that it's jurisdictional. The, the teachings of those cases is that the court has used the phrases power and jurisdiction too broadly, too loosely, and is now, as you say, trying to cut back on those jurisdictional limits. And a rule like this can only be jurisdictional if it's based on a statute. And I believe all the parties agree this rule is not based on a statute. So then that gets us finally to the question of, if 3742 does not provide the answer and it is a rule of practice, is it a mandatory rule of practice, an inflexible rule of practice, or one where the Court can uh, use discretion uh, as to whether or not to apply it when it's invoked? And the, uh, there can be no question that there are discretionary rules of practice. Indeed, in Bowles, the one issue on which all nine justices agreed is just that. Justice Souter, writing for the dissent, would have found that that rule of practice was discretionary. 
Uh, Justice Thomas, right? Well, if it's discretionary, how, how would you assume it's reviewable for abuse of discretion? Indeed. How would you know whether it's an abuse of discretion or not? I mean, the issue is going to be the same in every case. There was no cross appeal. If there had been, we would have increased the sentence. And one court of appeal says, well, we're not going to do it. And the other court of appeal says, yeah, we're going to do it. Which one is reversed for abuse of discretion? I, I believe the, the one that refused to to correct such a plain error, obviously. I thought you might say yes, that, yes. but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but the, your question really is then, what is the standard? Uh, I, if, I, if I may, I believe that's the question. And the Court has, I think, provided the, the several formulations of what the standard is. In Langus, the Court said good cause was the standard. In Reynolds, which, contrary to, to what Petitioner said, was a case where this Court afforded relief on a sentence to a criminal petitioner who had not uh, brought that issue to this Court. Would you, could you do this? Because now this is quite helpful to me. Uh, reading, I started out where Justice Scalia was at the beginning of this argument. I, I thought the district court normally uh, has it open uh, to the judge to resentence. Resentence is resentence. You can't be vindictive, but that's the limit. Uh, that's how it works normally, I thought. And, and given if that's so, then you look at the three sections we just saw, try to read them together, and say they certainly are written with the notion that the noticing of a plain error on the other side is going to be few and far between, if ever. So the normal way to handle it is just what we said. The judge decides on the record and the appeal. I decide this for the defendant here. says, I decide, but I've noticed something, says the writing judge. And, of course, it's open on resentencing to go into that. So if you were going to do something other than that in the Court of Appeals, You'd have to have a reason, and it would have to be a fairly good reason. So you don't close off the escape hatch because we can't all foresee the future perfectly, but you say it's going to be few and far between. Now, does that work? I believe it does work, uh, Justice Breyer, and I believe now, it's, th- it's, th- this th- argument is not an argument under the statute. This is an argument giving your interpretation of what the background rule is. Uh, I believe and, that's and, right. and you would limit the background rule to plain error. Yes, your, yes, uh, Your Honor, I would. And. Uh, that does not really contradict what the Eighth Circuit did here. Rule 52B is really another formulation of the very same thing that the Court said in Langness, good cause. In Netsozi, it, the Court phrased it, countervailing considerations which outweigh the institu- institutional interests in fair notice and repose. Uh, and, of course, Rule 52B talks about fairness, integrity, and pub- public reputation of judicial proceedings. They're all different formulations of the same, of the same. If it's such a, if it's such a plain error, it's fair to ask why, why the government didn't cross appeal, isn't it? There is nothing in the record here, Justice, on that. The government has been very careful not to say, I urge you on, on uh, reply to, to ask. I believe it was a blunder. And so to adopt a blunder, a blunder. So to adopt the government's rule is to adopt a new, a new exclusionary rule that the defendant goes free when the constable blunders. Well, if, if this were to be a more frequent occurrence, i.e. plain errors, and uh, we were to rule for you and courts of appeals generally would do this, uh, then a defendant might think twice about, uh, about appealing in a complex case. That's true, Justice. Because there's nothing that could happen. Once the district court rules in the seven days for error goes by, there's, there's nothing that anybody can do um, to, to raise it. Well, the first part of your question was true, Justice Kennedy, but respectfully, the second part was not. Um, in the, the way it currently works under the rules, a defendant must file his notice of appeal before the government files in. So 
as it currently stands, he makes his choice before he ever knows. There is no extra burden uh, that would be placed on him. He doesn't have to pursue it if the government appeals. That's exactly right. And the government makes that point that at some point, if the government raises uh, its appeal, he could strike a deal with them. Now, it's not correct to assume that he could then unilaterally walk away because there is a notice of appeal, the government's notice of appeal. So he has to strike a deal with the government at that point. That's no different in this case than in this case. At oral argument, the Eighth Circuit asked both parties about this error. He could have struck a deal then. If this case turns on notice, there isn't a notice problem here. It's all over the record. It's raised at sentencing. It's raised uh, on appeal. It's discussed in the briefs. It's discussed at oral argument. This error was 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 known known to all. Now, but uh, I didn't I didn't understand that a, a party couldn't with voluntarily withdraw a notice of appeal. I mean, suppose the the only way that the Court of Appeals can get into this is because the defendant has pursued an appeal. Suppose this comes up and the defendant says, oh, my goodness, I stand to get 15 more years in prison. I'm withdrawing my notice of appeal. There's nothing before the Court of Appeals then. Nothing. That's a a critical difference, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg. You're exactly right that the Court of Appeals must have under 3742 a notice of appeal, or it has no jurisdiction. But under the uh, hypothetical we were discussing, I I, I perhaps assumed incorrectly, I thought we were talking about the defendant files his notice of appeal before the government ever files. Then subsequently the government files as well. Now if the defendant withdraws, there's still a notice of appeal before the court. Right. Right. But if if the government had never filed, you're exactly right that a defendant could take his back. But the problem is it doesn't answer Justice Kennedy's question. His question was, isn't a defendant entitled to know that, he's, that, he, that the government might appeal, that he might be at risk, that there might be a problem here? And my point is, he doesn't know under the current system anyway. He has to make his choice before the government ever makes its choice. Now, Mr. Jorgensen, may I take you back to something uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the argument, and I thought I followed it at the time, and I'm, 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 I may not have understood you. As I recall, you were explaining the difference between uh, uh, F1 and F2A and B uh, by saying that uh, in, in F1, uh, which, was, which does not embody any condition on who is appealed, right. uh, the concern is that uh, if there is an error, uh, it's an error which will, in effect, infect all cases. It's a circuit error uh, and is potentially there for any case that comes along for sentencing, whereas in F2, the, uh, if there's an error, the limit of damage is simply to the case itself. Uh, to, to the particular defendant. Where I don't follow that reasoning uh, is in the fact that F1 refers not only to an incorrect ap- uh, to a violation of law, but incorrect application of sentencing guidelines, which would seem to include uh, a, a, the, the particulars of a given case. Uh, so am, am I either misunderstanding your argument or maybe misunderstanding uh, subsection 1? Well, uh, Justice Souter, the, the, the lines between A1, A 2, 3, and 4 are, are not 
uh, as bright as they might be. But when, when Congress enacted it in response to Justice Scalia's question of why might Congress have done this, when it wrote it, which was before, before Booker, which introduced some additional obscurity as to which of those four doesn't, doesn't appeal fit mm. within, one was, is this imposed in violation of law? And in using that clear language, you can imagine that Congress would be concerned that violations of law not go unremitied. And, and if that's all it said, I, I, I would certainly understand your distinction. And then two is an incorrect application of the sentencing guidelines, which, again, at the time of the Sentencing Reform Act, uh, was in, were intended to be, man, uh, I believe, mandatory. So that it was a violation of law. Indeed. Indeed. There isn't that much of a difference between one and two. But then when you get to three and four, then you get into language that addresses the, the particulars of this case. Was this defendant's was the application to this defendant too high based on an unreasonable fact or to an unreasonable degree, I believe is the most. But the, the, I, I guess the problem I still have is some uh, incorrect applications of the sentencing guidelines pre-Booker uh, were, in fact, violations of law. Uh, but not all of them were, uh, any more than all of them are now. But forget the situation now. Not all of them were. And I, I don't see how you can draw the sort of the non-porous distinction that you're drawing. I mean, it's a... It's a, it's, a, it's a good try, but I, 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 there are, even pre-Booker, there are some incorrect applications that could have been corrected on an abuse standard that were not uh, properly described as, as violations of law, per se. I think that's right, Justice Souter. And I can only say that what we're doing here is we're hypothesizing why would Congress have said what they said. And it's a, it's a dangerous game to play. But th- that is my best, my best hypothesis. But it does say what it says. Now, if I can uh, return, I hope this is helpful, to the questions that began the entire argument, which is the sentencing, sentence packaging rule or the sentencing package rule, which Justice Breyer addressed. Uh, I believe the right answer to your question, Justice Stevens, is that there, under the way the sentencing package rule works, which is applied, I believe, by all circuits, is that if any part of a sentence. What, what, what do we mean by the sentencing packaging rule? It's a, it's, I, it's a very good question, Justice Scalia. Under Section 3553A, after the Sentencing Reform Act was imposed, uh, judges were, district judges were empowered and, and given the obligation to build a sentence that took into consideration a number of competing factors, such that you might, if you were a judge, a district judge, reduce a sentence under one count of an indictment if you were going to give more under, uh, under another, and you put together a sentencing package. And then that's the, that's the sentence that the, that the defendant receives. And then when that goes up on appeal, if any part of that package is undone, the whole package is undone. This is the rule that the, that the circuits follow. To your question, Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe they have a, a precedent of this court to fall to base that on. But it is it is the rule that is nearly uniformly followed. So then, when the case goes back to the district court, the district court is free to to construct a new sentence. So at, here, if the defendant had prevailed in any way then back on, a, on remand, the district judge could have imposed the same sentence. Now, a limit on that, Justice Scalia, is the vindictiveness cases, that if there's any evidence that the, that, that the increased sentence, making the sentence the same or more, is as a, you know, to pay, a payback that Punishment, you appeal, getting him reversed. Exactly. Then that can't be done. But otherwise, with that narrow exception, the sentence can be exactly the same, even though the defendant prevailed on appeal. Now, that played out exactly in this case. In this case, when it went back to the district court, the defendant said to the district court, don't give me more. You can fit the new 15 years within what I already have. Give me what I already had. And the district judge said, no, I'm, I'm going to give you more. Now, the, the answer clearly, I think, cannot turn on the fact that the Seventh, oh, excuse me, the Eighth Circuit knew the answer. 
Well, there was, we had some questions about what if the Eighth Circuit said, well, I see an error here, but I don't know how it affects your sentence, so I'm sending you back. Would that be okay? It, it can't turn on that the Seventh Circuit knew in this instance that he would get an increased sentence as versus it would be okay to send it back without saying what the effect would be for the district judge to impose. And, Justice Kennedy, your question was what happens if there's a new trial. Uh, as my children would say, it's a complete do-over. When, when, the, when, the, when the trial starts all over again, new facts are found or not found, and, and the sentence is completely constructed all over again based on the facts as found by the jury on the second trial. If I can end, uh, Justices, uh, I would end by saying that uh, I believe Section 3742 does provide the answer here. Uh, Congress provided a clean break with the past. Uh, the idea that Congress was aware of a clear rule that they would have followed, I think, is contradicted by Reynolds, where this Court did the opposite, uh, Langus, where this Court said that the cross-appeal rule was a, was a rule of practice, not a, not a jurisdictional uh, limit, and the confusion in the, in the Courts of Appeals. Uh, I believe the answer to your question, Justice Scalia, on whether it was well-established is that in the civil context, I believe the D.C. 3rd, 4th, 8th, and 9th Circuits say that this is a rule of practice, while the 7th while the has debated it back and forth. And in Netsozi, the Court noted this confusion and noted, indeed, that some of the circuits are internally inconsistent as, as to what the rule is. It's slightly different in the criminal context. I believe the 8th and the 10th Circuits have not followed, have, have not followed the cross-appeal rule, while the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 7th have, and the 5th is internally inconsistent. I may, I may have some error, honestly, in, in that recitation. I did it from my memory when you asked. But my point, I think, comes through no matter what, which is how could Congress have assumed this is a clear rule and when we write these words, the courts will know that's what we mean when there's all this confusion uh, um, amongst the courts. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. Howe, you have two minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, I have two points. The first is that the amicus argues that subsection E, Section 3742, provides the answer in this case, that upon Review of the record, the Court of Appeals shall determine. And so his argument is that this authorizes and, in fact, requires the Court of Appeals to determine whether any of the errors that are outlined in subsection E have occurred. But E can't possibly be the sort of empowering, roving, freestanding authority that, that the amicus believes it is, because if you look at the language of subsection E, all it provides, and this Court has, has recognized that it merely provides the scope of review, is that upon review of the record, the Court of Appeals shall determine. Um, it doesn't say anything about whether a notice of appeal has been filed, how the record got there. And to figure out those things, you have to look at the structure of the statute. And when you look at the structure of the statute, it's clear that subsections A and B are the provisions that provide for appellate jurisdiction in sentencing cases. Yamikas also tries to argue that, you know, in fact, this is not. He also contradicts uh, F. Uh, F. 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 Two and then two A and B because in in some of those cases it it doesn't determine that if the appeal has been bought by the wrong party. That's absolutely right. F merely provides the remedy, Justice Scalia. Yeah. Now, the amicus tries also to, to argue that this is not some sort of freestanding, roving appellate authority that, you know, for example, if the case is brought under A-1, a violation of law, the Court of Appeals only needs to determine whether it's a violation of law. But he also argues that the Court of Appeals is not obligated to scour the record for errors. It's only to, to notice plain error. But if once you start placing these limits, these limits come from subsections A and B, 
and the background of traditional appellate practice. And once you start placing these limits, which do not appear in the text on subsection E, the entire construction falls apart. The second point I would make is that the amicus argues that, that somehow Section 3742 represents a break from the past, that Congress did not have in mind this, uh, the background of this well-established appellate procedure. But in Section 3742, Congress made clear I finished that it was only providing for limited appellate review. And if you're going to treat sentencing cases differently, in light of this Court's historic practice of construing the availability of government appeals narrowly, you need to treat uh, — you need to, to be even more reluctant to deviate from the cross-appeal rule. Thank you, Ms. Howe. Uh, Mr. Jorgensen, you uh, briefed and argued this case as an amicus curiae in support of the judgment below on appointment by the Court. We thank you for undertaking and discharging that assignment. The case is submitted.